Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Last week, I mentioned the graphic novel Ghost Island. With it, came a few bonus graphic novels that I took a look at and thought a few of them worth a mention. The first is City of Lost Souls, from writer James McCulloch and artist Janine Van Musel. The story follows a serial killer, freshly dead, now set about a task by the Denzins of the afterlife. I think that I might liken it to Clive Barker's Hellraiser mythos. The art I enjoyed in The Madness of Hell was a nice bonus. The second, and my favorite of the batch, is Hexes, issue two, Waking Nightmare. The watercolor style of coloring really caught my eye. The story is of a man whose hair was stolen by spirits, or maybe monsters, as a child, and now he hunts them. As strange of a premise as it may sound, I did enjoy the story. I might have to go back and find issue one to see how that went. The third is Slaughterhouse Farm. This one was a very straightforward, teenagers get killed in the woods by a hillbilly. Actually, it's set in Wales, so I'm not sure what the Welsh version of a hillbilly is, but I think you get the idea. Sometimes, the most well-worn tropes of our genre are the most familiar. I've linked to all three in the show notes, so I think that each might be worth a click to see if they'd be up your alley or not. Now it's time for some stories of our own. Our story for the night comes to us from Roy Bishop. Roy Bishop's fiction has appeared in collections by Lycan Valley and EMP Press, as well as several monthly venues. He resides in Fort Collins, Colorado, with his dog, Laserbomb. Children of the Night, listen with me to Roy Bishop's Flyover Country, a Tales to Terrify original. Arkansas, 1989. Billy Day loves the far hangar the best because it's the one his father visits least. It is rife with memories of days like today. The cool shade, stolen cigarette smoke in his lungs, a view of the tarmac that splits the world half green while the other half yawns blue and empty. 
The gentle whisper of the wind is intermittently broken by the buzz of an approaching propeller. As they deal mostly in crop dusters this far from civilization, or the odd scream of a jet engine. Does Cattle Flat need this airfield? Probably not. The town peaked at 600 people sometime in the 1950s, and they haven't changed the sign since then to reflect the exodus of the last three decades. Cattle Flat isn't far from the rice and cotton they grow in the lowlands, but it's still high enough in the Ozark foothills to make farming a fool's errand. Even the name isn't all that honest. The soil is so stony and spare that good luck flat might be more appropriate. But the airfield is comfortably in the black, almost flourishing. Billy's father owns not only the field, but the rental car operation that shares an office with it. Two Buick Skylarks and a white Toyota pickup are available at reasonable rates for pilots who get in late or are on furlough. Billy's father has even talked about opening a small motel beside the airfield, or maybe, in bad times, at Cattle Flat. The economics of the airfield are as simple to understand as the motivation behind them. Billy knows from his father's rambling stories at the dinner table that the big man had grown up poor. He'd lacked the nerve to be a pilot, but studied airplanes just the same. Sunny Day sputtered and apologized his way through sales jobs and factory work for years, but his eyes were always on the sky. At some point, He'd gotten his hands on flight plans and found that crop dusters were refueling 15-20 times a day on the West Delta due to the lack of operational airfields. It took so long to get from farm to farm that the pilots kept having to turn back and refuel, and it was costing farmers and pilots a lot of money. Not enough to warrant setting up their own individual airfields, but a lot. When it rained too much, which was often, they had the highway department close off a back road and they took off from the asphalt at great expense and difficulty. It was an expense they had to live with, until sunny. Cattle Flat sits high on a ridge at the nexus of a half a dozen twisting nightmare mountain roads. But as the crow flies, it is only a few minutes from where the foothills give way to the farmland. There are a dozen towns just like it along the front range of the Ozarks. Cattle Flat is 60 miles from the two closest operating airfields. With the placement of Sunny's airstrip, they can ship out from home, dust the fields, refuel with Sunny, and then finish up on the way home. Saves time and fuel. And when it comes to pricing, Sunny rarely will gouge his base. Sometimes, he even gives him discounts. He started his business on a huge loan in 1972. And even through the lean Carter years, his business model ensured a steady profit. His house has two stories, his wife has Merlot every night, and his son has all the best Ninja Turtles. It's the best life anyone's living, for a hundred miles. But even at his young age, Billy knows that his father is never truly happy, unless he's watching someone squirm. Sunny Day is not a puncher or a kicker of his only child, but he is an arm twister, a neck pincher, a shoulder squeezer, an ear torker. When it gets bad, Billy has noticed a smile begins to form on his father's face. He has seen that same smile when his father greets a wayward pilot at the pumps, an irregular customer warranting an irregular price. Sonny needs those moments as much as he needs food and water. The sad relief of thinking, the ground is not under this one's foot, so it must be under mine.
Once, when Billy's mother was drunk, she'd let her tongue slip and had told Billy something terrible. We made it through good times and bad, but he wants to never have to just make it again. She'd thrown back the glass of Merlot and poured herself another one, full to the rim. Sometimes I wish he had a mistress. It would be a relief to know he could love another person as much as he loves this idea he's got of himself. Billy hadn't said anything, but she'd kept talking. Sunny day, bonafide big shot. She'd sipped her wine and smiled bitterly. Maybe he'll make it, or maybe someday he'll fly too high and realize that his wings are melting off his shoulders. Carla Day had been very drunk, but she wasn't wrong. It's going to happen today, Billy thinks, as he hears the drone of an approaching jet engine, the odd duck wayward aircraft about to drop out of the sky. I'm going to see that cruel smile cross my father's face. Billy stomps out his clandestine cigarette. At least he won't be making it at me. The jet that touches down on their airstrip is a high-priced private number. An aero commander. No, wait. A courser commander. It is reflective silver from nose to tail, almost blinding in the late May sun. Is it even legal to paint it that color? Billy wonders. But then, of course it is. If you can afford one of those, then you get to make your own laws. Man, Billy says, he's going to eat them alive. Three people come off the silver bird. The first is an older gentleman, white-haired and red-faced, with a thick cowboy's mustache. He is dressed in khakis and a blue button-up t-shirt that is damp at the armpits and neckline. He surveys the tarmac, then calls out for steps. Billy gets up as force of habit, but then sees the latest mechanic, Gary, rolling a set of steel steps over to the side of the airplane. Once they are in place, the old pilot yells something over the sound of his own idling engines. A moment later, two people descend the steps. Billy has seen them before at the top of every wedding cake he'd ever laid eyes on. A handsome, dark-haired man in a black suit that almost looks like a tuxedo from a distance and a pale, gorgeous blonde in a white dress, not far removed from a bridal gown. Hear ye, hear ye, thinks Billy. The glitz and glamour of Hollywood is at long last come to cattle flat. Billy starts out across the tarmac. He buses into a magnet school in Travisburg, and he's laid eyes on a few older girls that made his guts twist with desire. But even at a distance, he knows that this woman isn't any small-town looker. His burgeoning adolescence is driving and wants to get a closer look at the gal in the white dress. Even at a distance, he can tell she's the kind of classic Tinseltown lady you'd see in an old black and white movie. He almost expects the color to wash out of her as he gets closer. Something happens below his waist he doesn't understand. The days haven't had that talk yet, but it doesn't slow his stride. He looks to the man just long enough to see that he's just as ridiculously good-looking as the lady. His hair is center-parted, his eyes brown on black. He stands at just over six feet with a brazen California tan. He's offered his hand to Sonny, who shakes it vigorously and inquires about the flight. The handsome man leans back on his heels, hands on his hips, unaware that Billy's father is already thinking of how much he's going to overcharge for jet fuel. Billy looks back to the woman. Her eyes are blue, after all. She sees him and offers him a smile that hurts his heart. Gary passes by. 
he grunts quietly. Not polite to point, kid. It takes Billy a moment to realize what Gary is getting at. When he does, he cringes away and takes a moment to collect himself. When he turns back around, the woman is still smiling at him, and she offers him a wink. He feels like melting. A conversation has been taking place all this time, and at last he hears part of it. Yeah, Gary will take a look at it, sure, says Sonny. Much appreciated, says the handsome man, in a voice like Gregory Peck. Oh, he just had it serviced as the odd thing, but John insisted the front wheel was a little slow coming down. Yeah, probably just need some oil on the pneumatics. Sonny looks past his son, as he often does, to see Gary going into the shop. With a burst of speed that belies Sonny's massive girth, he trots over to his mechanic. His father knows how expensive this airplane is. This looks to go a lot further than overpriced jet fuel. Billy feels a lump forming in his throat. Son, Billy turns around to see the handsome man is soundlessly approached and has his hand out. Billy shakes it, grip as limp as a dead fish. The man's hand is powerful, but restrained. Billy senses that should the handsome man desire, he could clamp down and crush the boy's fingers. I was wondering if you could show me and my wife to the restrooms. It's been a long way since Myrtle Beach. You came from Myrtle Beach? asks Billy. He's never even seen the ocean. And before then, Bermuda, says the beautiful woman, who joins her man in front of him. Her big blue eyes pop wide. We're chasing the sunset. The handsome man gives her a nod and lightly bumps her with his shoulder. She winks at him and offers a wry smile. Are there restrooms on site? he asks. My apologies for asking again, but... He shrugs. Oh yeah, right this way, Billy says, and leads them to the control tower building, such as it is. Behind him, his father and the mechanic are readying their makeshift fuel truck, a Toyota with a 500-gallon tank welded to the back, under the watchful eye of the old pilot. When they position the truck in front of the airplane, the pilot, Billy can't remember his name, lets out a faint grumble then casts his eyes to the east. They've got two restrooms in the lobby area and are interchangeable save for the men-women signs. Billy waits by the tarmac door, giving the two travelers relative privacy without abandoning the tower building completely, which is a big no-no to Sunny Day. He's joined shortly by the old pilot, who nods to him and walks over to the pair of 70s-era chairs that are set up in the waiting area where he sits down and begins to thumb through an old issue of Sports Illustrated. Bermuda, asks Billy. Ah, Bermuda, says the old pilot, in an Irish brogue. I hope he hurries up in there, boyo. My back teeth are floating something fierce. Gentlemen would have let his elder go first, but... The old man shrugs and settles on a retrospective on James Worthy. Out on the tarmac... Gary walks to the back of the jet while carrying a pair of yellow rubber wheel chocks. He puts them in place behind the commander's landing gears, snapping them in place as easy as you please. Billy feels his guts twist. The trap had sprung. He looks back into the lobby to see the old pilot staring at him over the top of his magazine. Something bothering you, son? Uh, no, he answers. Just thinking. Billy clears his throat. What's Bermuda like? Wet, says the old pilot. Like my pants are bound to be if you don't hurry up in there. Gah, you guys got a tree handy. I ain't bashful. Billy grins, 
Trees in the Ozarks? We got billions. The old pilot laughs. A moment later, there is the sound of a flushing toilet and then the running water of a sink in the women's restroom. The woman emerges a moment later and demurely crosses the room to sit across from the old pilot. What are you reading? The lost rights to my kidneys. The old pilot puts down his magazine. You got any issues with? He nods toward the unoccupied restroom. I won't tell a soul, says Billy. The man hops to his feet and crosses the floor quickly, slamming the door behind him. After a handful of seconds, he issues an audible groan of relief. We're usually classier than this, says the lady. I can tell. He realizes he's blushing and hates himself for it. So, Bermuda, he feels like he's on Ask About Bermuda autopilot. Oh, yes, in a different airplane, of course. This one wouldn't cover the distance as small as it is. We flew for more than half a day from Ilia das Flores in the East Atlantic after coming in from Lisbon and... She shakes her head. I'm sorry, I don't mean to go on about it. No, it's okay, says Billy. I want to see all that someday, but hearing about it's just fine for now. You'll love it, she says. The humpbacks are all over the place this time of year. I went out in a boat and you could hear them singing through the hall. It's... There's nothing like being close to something like that. Her eyes are fixed at a point in the distance. It is a look of deep longing, and whatever resistance to her charm that Billy might have held slips away. He is in love. The man's bathroom toilet flushes just in time to break the mood. The handsome man strides out with his brow beaded with sweat despite the late spring cool of the day. I guess we'll go out and get a word on our landing gear, he says. Thank you for your hospitality. Billy's heart sinks a bit to know the woman will be leaving. Don't mention it. There is a secondary flush from the women's room, and out comes the old pilot. The handsome man chuckles at him. Feeling your feminine side, John. John, the old pilot, sneers in response and heads outside, holding the tarmac door open for the couple and leaving Billy alone. The boy paces in place for a moment then heads to the men's bathroom himself to wash his face and collect himself. He opens the door and almost gags. The stench reminds him of chicken houses and stockyards, rancid and spoiled. You need to go see a doctor, man, he says, and then splashes his face with cold water before doing an inventory. The bowl is cleaner than it should be, as if the handsome man went at it with a brush himself before leaving. The toilet seat is down. Under its shadow, Billy notices something. He grimaces. It is his job to clean the toilets after all, and lifts the lid. The underside of the toilet seat is speckled with fresh of blood. You do need to go see a doctor, Billy whispers. He thinks, the handsome man must have cancer. This must be his last trip. That is followed by... That means his wife will soon be a widow. He hates himself for thinking of that. They say in Sunday school how wrong it is to covet. Besides, he's all of twelve years old. Then those icy blue eyes pervade his memory, and he finds himself walking out the tarmac door. I should at least get their names. Then he stops in his tracks. He'd forgotten what his father was up to. We have to leave today, says the handsome man with a quavering insistence. Behind him, his wife wears a look of brow-furrowed concern.
and John the old pilot stands with his arms crossed and his head down. You don't understand. It's not safe, bleats Sunny Day, his hands on his wide, fatty hips. You need a replacement landing gear. Soonest we can get one in is next week. Have to special order. God is bullshit, pipes John. Pardon my language, mum, but we just had it serviced. That gear needs oil and that's all. Cool it with the profanity, says Sonny, who Billy knows to use fuck as a comma when his wife is out. Gary, just confirming here, but it is a defective landing gear, is it not? Yes, sir, says Gary, idly cleaning his hands with a filthy rag. Things shut. The handsome man steps forward. He bears a sudden intensity that leaves Billy feeling uneasy. Sir, I want you to listen to me. I did not complain when you charged me two dollar a gallon for jet fuel. I will pay you the cost of this bogus repair. I can afford it, but you must let us leave this afternoon, and no later. It is imperative. Must, 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 Sonny Mockingbirds. I hate that word. You can't must your way out of this. Your gear is shot. Not only that, it's shot on my runway. I gotta call a tow truck. You must pay for that too. And set you up in a hangar so you aren't taking up the room. Now, you want a rental car? We got three options to get you to Batesville. We don't need a fucking rental car. The handsome man is practically roaring now. Do you not understand? It is important we head west within the hour. If we don't head west... His wife takes his arm to calm him down. It's, it's not what you think, she says, stepping in front of her husband. This is, it's a medical procedure, you see, in, in Colorado. Billy wants to step in and say, she's right, just go check out the bathroom, but doesn't. We don't hold a grudge, just let us on our way, please. How could you say no to her, thinks Billy. His father shows him. Oh, a medical procedure. Sonny holds up his hands and wriggles his fingers. You come from across the ocean to get a checkup. Please, even if that was true, you should have thought of that before you smarted off to me. Gary, go call Elmer Nutter. Get his tow truck down here. We'll put this thing in the far hangar till that part gets in. Gary runs off, eyes still on his rag. Sir, says the handsome man. And you can forget about a rental car. That smile is back. The ground under my feet, not your smile. Not after you cuss me out on my own runway. You two can sleep in that airplane of yours or hitchhike your way to Batesville for all I care. But you ain't using my restrooms no more. Go shit in the woods for all I care. We'll pay you, says the woman. We have money. Billy knows what's coming, but it doesn't make it any less embarrassing. Sunny day isn't for sale, pipes his father and turns on his heel, walking away with a John Wade stride like he'd just won a gunfight. Billy watches him go, helpless, then turns back to see John, the old pilot, has knelt down before him. Do you live near here? he asks. Yeah, we got a house down the road about a quarter mile, Billy mumbles. What's the closest town? Cattle Flat proper. It's about six miles out. Batesville is about forty miles. Six miles, whispers John. Six bloody miles. Thank goodness for flyover country. Son, I want you to say whatever you have to say to your pa. You need to get us airborne within two hours. Anything else will be pushing it. We'll... 
We'll do pretty much anything to get headed west. We just have to go. Billy doesn't know what he's going to say until the question is already out of his mouth. Would you take me with you? The old man smiles in that warm old man way that makes it look as if tears are about to well in his eyes. Oh, son, he says, you don't want that. We're very flattered all the same, says the beautiful woman. You're a fine young gentleman, says the handsome man. But it's not... We can't just take someone's child, John says. We just need your help. We would be eternally grateful. And when you're old enough, who knows, says the handsome man. We could swing through here again, take you anywhere you want to go. The thought warms Billy's heart, but only for a moment. I will do what I can, Billy lies. I'll try my best. But he knows that by now Nutter's truck is five miles out in closing, and he knows his father will padlock the far hangar. And should he smell any cigarette smoke, he'll twist Billy's ears just as if this were any other day. Billy is grown up being defeated by his father. He knows what's coming. An hour later, Nutter has come and gone. The courser has been towed to the far hangar, and as predicted, the sliding door is shut and padlocked. The travelers hover by the small access door to the hangar, talking amongst themselves. Sonny is back in his office, and Gary is in the control tower, reading up on James Worthy, with a rifle leaning against the wall behind him. Only Billy lingers outside, a forgotten observer to this ugly afternoon. The sky is gone from that pure unadulterated blue and is now tinged in gold. A cold wind kicks up and rifles through Billy's clothes. It's an October kiss in spring, the promise of winter's inevitable return. The boy shivers. John leaves the wedding cake couple and comes to Billy with his head down. He runs his fingers across his white, wispy, bald scalp. Ah, uh, son, he says. I don't suppose you could filch the key for us. I hate to ask you to steal, but if it weren't life and death, you know. He keeps it in his pocket, Billy answers. He'll hurt me if I try to take it from him. The old pilot kneels down again and puts a hand on Billy's shoulder. Son, if we don't get out of here, Mr. Rollins loves his wife very much and he does keep a gun on board. The boy flinches in shock. He wasn't expecting that. But I thought he was the one who was sick, asks Billy, without thinking. The old man arches his eyebrows and Billy stammers. I wasn't going to say anything. I'm sorry, I went into the bathroom after him and, and there was blood. Son, all you need to know is that these are two very desperate people. It won't matter, says Billy. My dad has done this before. Gary's up in the watchtower now. He's got a gun with a scope on it. My dad's going to pay him $400 to watch that hangar until morning, and my dad... Can you get to the flight plans? John asks. Are there any other planes coming through today? His eyes are a little too wide, his voice a little too loud. Billy backs away from the old man. Son, we will buy someone else's plane and give you this one if we have to. We just have to go. We have to go before sunset. I don't know any other way to put this. We have to go. Sir, Billy is choked up and tears spill out of his eyes. He hates it. It makes him feel weak. Sir, there, there's nothing I can do. I want to help you. I'm sorry. The old pilot sighs, but doesn't stand. Then there's only one thing left to say, he says. You have to leave. 
What? You. Your father, the mechanic. Anyone close to here. You all got to leave by sunset. You got to leave or I don't think I can help you. He's threatening us, thinks Billy. We have to call the constable. Cattle Flat might be too close. The lot of you should go to Batesville. You gotta do that or get your dad to open that hangar. Billy can hardly speak around the lump in his throat, but manages a final question. Mister, are you going to try and kill us? That's not who we are, says the old pilot, who finally rises to his feet and turns away. We were trying to save your lives before we ever landed. Billy doesn't plead a final case to his father. It would do no good. Sunny Day is in his office now, humming to himself as he finishes out the day's paperwork. The crop dusters are all done until tomorrow morning, and he's about to close up shop. The stairway to the control tower is behind him. Gary's got the radio on up there, and the music of the Desert Rose Band drifts down. One step forward, two steps back. Billy leaves and rides his bike to the custom two-story down the road. He leaves it propped up against the ash tree outside his bedroom window. Inside the dayhouse, his mother is watching the five o'clock news in a pink bathrobe. She's got a glass of Merlot in her hand, and it's probably not the first of the evening. Mom? asks Billy. Yeah? I'm thinking since school is out, why don't we go somewhere? Like Little Rock or something? Maybe tonight? We're not going anywhere tonight, sweetie, she says, and focuses her attention back on the news where the sports guy talks about the Lakers sweeping the Phoenix Suns. That's that. Billy retreats upstairs to his room and closes the door. He plays idly with his ninja turtles on his bed, but his thoughts are on the three people down the road. His father pulls into the gravel loop in front of their house an hour later, using his big blue Suburban to travel a quarter mile that he could and probably should be walking. By then... Billy's mother has worked together a dinner of bland chili slathered on Frito corn chips. Mother and son eat at the table as Sunny Day recounts the afternoon's adventures. The slick city folks who came in and tried to get one over on him. His monologue reminds Billy of the other kids on the playground. The way one of them will talk when he jumps farther from the swings than all the others. I don't understand, Billy mutters into his chili bowl. Sunny Day trails off. He dabs his mouth with a napkin. Hmm. Don't understand what? They offered us money. Billy looks to his mother, hoping this will draw her into the conversation. And maybe, just maybe, they can do right by these folks. Or as close to right as is still possible. I don't understand why we can't let them go. I'm staying out of this, says Billy's mother. Well, it's the principle for one thing, says Sonny. You're young. Too young to understand, but there's more to life than money. You've got to stand for something. This is our ground, our place. And when someone comes in and treats you the way they treated us, you don't just let them walk all over you because they got a little folding money. They got a word for people who let you do whatever you want to do to them for money. And it sure as shit ain't airstrip manager. But they're sick, Dad. The man is, anyway. There was blood in the toilet and... His mother drops her spoon. Is this really proper dinner conversation? I'm sorry, Carla, says Sonny. I don't know why he's being so vulgar. They're going to play an old trick now, talking about him like he isn't there. But their flight path had them coming from Myrtle Beach. If they're sick, they'd have got taken care of at Myrtle Beach. 
Maybe our son should listen to his parents rather than strangers. Those strangers didn't buy him his clothes or toys or cook him this delicious supper. No, they didn't, quips Carla Day. She spoons a helping of her Wotel bean ground chuck concoction and slurps it down. It's a shame our son is that way, isn't it? It is. Old enough for a learner's permit and still playing with toys. If he can smoke like a man, he can at least act like a man. Sonny produces a spent butt from his shirt pocket as Carla utters a half-drunken theatric gasp. Yeah, boy, we could smell it on you from across the room. Billy eats the rest of his dinner in silence. Across the table, his father is beaming. With his right ear throbbing, Billy spends the next few hours after supper in his room, reading a dog-eared paperback, The Elf Stones of Shannara, as the cave crickets begin their late afternoon song. The sun sinks below the western mountains, and fifty pages shy of the end paper it is gone, as the world outside goes a purple sort of dark. As he's reading the author's note at the end, and making a mental note to ask his buddy in town where he can find a copy of Wish Song, the night outside his open window takes on a blue cast. The full moon is rising in the east. He sets the book on his dresser. It's too early to brush his teeth and go to bed, and he hasn't been allowed to watch any television this summer, even before they found the cigarette butt, which could just as easily have been from Gary, but under their withering gaze, Billy was unable to hide his guilt. So instead, he goes to the end of the upstairs hallway to look through the Day family's lone bookshelf. Nothing fancy here. Self-help stuff with biographies and cookbooks, mostly. But there are a couple of dog-eared old crime novels and the obese totality of Shelby Foote's The Civil War, a narrative. Billy chooses Fredericksburg to Meridian and carries that heavy sucker to his bedroom, just as the sound of a distant gunshot drifts in through his open window. He pauses as the echo reverberates through the hills. It is hard to place at first, but the second shot solves the mystery, if there ever was one. Gary's rifle. I should have said something, thinks Billy, as a lump forms in his throat. I didn't say anything, and now... Canned laughter drifts up from the staircase below. There is a final shot down the road that puffs out in the night air like a weak firecracker. The night birds and night bugs have all stopped singing, and their songs do not return. Billy feels a cold sweat beat out of his skin as he lays the heavy book down on his bed. His bedroom window faces away from the road, so he crosses the hallway to his parents' bedroom and puts his nose against the glass. All he can see through the trees is the flashing red light atop the control tower, but the rest is obscured. He forces the window open and listens hard, but the only sound besides the downstairs television is the lonely sigh of wind through pregnant spring leaves. After a few minutes, he slides the window shut again. Mom? Dad? He calls as he steps back into the hallway. The lights go out. Glass shatters, and his mother screams. The next two minutes come in a blur of shadows and sound. More glass breaks on the first floor, the last remnants of the big bay window in the den. A moment later, a shape comes lumbering up the stairway toward him. He backs away, mute and frozen with fear until he smells Merlot and realizes it's his mother. Billy, she whispers, 
And then he hears what are perhaps his father's last words. They will stay in Billy's memory longer than any of his cruelties. Save the boy, Carla! She pushes Billy into his room, slams the door, and then, in one drunken swaying shove, she pops the screen out of his bedroom window frame. Get in the tree and climb down! She hisses at him through moonlit teeth. Something heavy crashes over the first floor, followed by discordant music. The family piano. Something else is thundering up the stairway. Go! Billy is deathly afraid of heights, but a familiar stink, that stockyard funk, bowls into the room like an invisible thunderhead as the door splits in half at the middle. He leaps off the windowsill and into the branches of the hundred-year ash. Clutching for purchase in a controlled fall, he breaks through the lowest branches and skids to the ground with his sneakers grinding against the trunk until he lands on the lawn hard enough to knock the wind out of him. By some miracle of youth, his bones and muscles hold together. He stands up and begins to call for his mother, and as he does, he finds himself facing the kitchen window. Inside, his father stands before a hulking dark figure, so jet black that for a moment, Billy wonders if the night itself has invaded their home. Two glistening black eyes look down at Sonny in animal observance as the dark mass breaks open to reveal a mouthful of pearly fangs. Sonny Day, a 300-pound giant of a man, quails before the monster. Billy has never seen his father look quite so small. Above, in Billy's bedroom, there is a choking cry that is cut off as soon as it starts. Billy wills himself to look up expecting to see his mother climbing out of the window. No one is there. Something wet and thick speckles across his cheeks, the bridge of his nose. He steps backwards and bumps into the ash tree, one hand falling on the handlebars of his bicycle. His eyes are drawn back to the kitchen window. The thing has extended two clawed hands out toward his father, as if it were asking him for a dance. After a short pause, the beast lunges. One hand and paw buries itself in his father's eyes, and as Sonny screams, the other swipes down onto his open jaw and grips down, tearing the sinews and skin with a horrific ripping noise that Billy can hear through the window. That claw carries down in one singular motion, wearing Sonny's jaw like a bracelet as it rips open Sonny Day's proud belly. Sonny's tongue lolls free for a moment until the monster leans in and bites it off. His father, what remains of him, collapses in a mewling heap. The beast pounces, its fangs and claws pistoning like an engine. A rain of dark ruin paints the kitchen where Billy has eaten breakfast Cheerios and painted Easter eggs and blown out birthday candles. As the gore spreads, he notices the silver-coated creature that has joined his father's murderer in the kitchen. Its lighter color makes its shape easier to make out, the twisting muscle underneath its hide, the outline of three sets of breasts running along its ribcage, his mother's blood gleaming on its muzzle and drizzling off its fists. Its eyes are icy blue and so mesmerizing that it takes Billy a moment to register that they have fallen on him. A moment breathes. The monster shows its fangs. Billy moves first leaping onto his bike. His feet pound the pedals as he makes for the gravel road. He hears the tinkle of breaking glass behind him, 
the moan of strained wood being pulled apart by ragged, wet claws. His eyes are dry, alert in the cool of night. His heart is beating too fast to break. The deepest parts of him, the caveman and the tall grass parts of him, kick in with a message that drowns out the terrible reality of his orphaning. Something is coming after you, and if it catches you, it will kill you. He doesn't look back. The airstrip comes up at the right after a minute or so. The lights are on in the tower, and Gary's blood is splashed across the windows in drooling idiot patterns. He remembers the bloody toilet basin, the animal stink, and that blends with the vision of his father, eyeless, jawless, tongueless, his intestines and life's blood spilling out across the linoleum at the feet of the only kind of monster that comes with a full moon. She told us, Billy thinks. She told us they were chasing the sunset. When the morning comes, Billy is alone, but alive. It happened fast. Just past the airfield, the old pilot burst out of the thicket and tackled Billy off his bike. John clamped a hand over the boy's mouth and dragged him into the ditch, whispering a mad string of calming platitudes that Billy couldn't remember. Together they crawled through the mud and muck and ditch water until John had led Billy to the rusty culvert that drained the tarmac. He'd hurriedly stuffed the boy inside, muttered something about daybreak, and then he'd run away with a speed that belied his age. The culvert ran about twelve feet from either opening. Billy wedged himself about six feet from the moonlight on either end and curled himself into the smallest knot that he could manage. It was not long until the monsters came calling. Their muzzles appeared at either end, dripping with bloody saliva, greedily inhaling his scent through flared nostrils. They began to chew and dig, reducing the metal at both ends of the culvert to gleaming ribbons. One foot gave way, then another. Certain death was coming. Billy had shut his eyes and begun to pray. When he lost the train of thought to do that, he hyperventilated until he passed out. Now, in the sunlight, he wakes to about a foot of safety on either end of the culvert before the metal gives way to a twisted ruin. Save for the twin slivers of pink light, both ends are buried in the dirt and gravel of the collapsing road. The air is spent. In a claustrophobic fury, Billy digs himself out of this premature grave with his fingernails tearing clothes and skin on the shredded metal before he breaks free into the chill of the Ozark mountain air. He sucks it in greedily, as greedily as the monsters who took his scent the night before. He shuts his eyes, waiting for the end. But there is nothing waiting to pounce on him. He smells smoke in the air. He can't bring himself to go back home. Not yet. Instead, he follows the smell of fire past the front office and onto the tarmac. The light is still up in the tower, and he can see that Gary's blood is darkened and dried on the glass. There is a dead man on the tarmac who Billy recognizes as Earl Gregerson, a forty-something crop duster pilot from Oil Trough. He is quite easy to identify, his corpse being left in relatively good condition, save for the bullet hole in the man's throat. Gregerson's crop duster is nowhere to be seen. The far hangar is a smoldering wreck. The roof has either collapsed in fire or been blown away by the explosion of the commander's full tank of jet fuel. The lock and door on the far hangar somehow still stands, 
They are both mangled with scratches and bites and warped from the heat of the blaze, but still stand firm. This story is easy for Billy to put together, even in the twilight of deep shock. The three of them had shot Gregerson for his plane and then burned the evidence that they'd ever been to Cattle Flat. Where to then? West? Or perhaps they'd gone in some other direction, if only to allow the new day to gain ground against the blue kingdom of the moon. Alaska, 2017 Shame to see you two go, says Bob Shudder. It's gonna get lonely up here in town when it's just us chickens. He hunts and pecks across his keyboard, entering the couple's flight path on the ancient Hewlett-Packard the state forced on him back in the late 1990s. Vancouver, Honolulu, then a bunch of cities he couldn't pronounce correctly if you paid him. Should at least stay for the sunset tomorrow. You gotta see it once before you leave. Real pretty. The couple smile politely, but don't answer him right away. When that's all squared... Bob looks out the window across the dirt runway that acts as a sole in and out point of Garnet, Alaska. 500 yards out sits a near-new Cessna Citation, its whiteness almost blinding against the backdrop of untended green wilderness. Bob's shot-off borderline midget mechanic is giving their jet a once-over before the happy couple leaves. The lady, Belle Mohegan, clears her throat. I've heard it gets cold quite quickly once the night comes back, she says. I'm afraid I don't have the constitution for such a thing. To Bob Shudder, an old salt pushing 80, she sounds a bit like Jackie Kennedy showing off the White House. Faint, faded, but personable and endearing in a way that stirs him in a way nothing has since he ran north during the Carter years. Looks-wise, she's not far off from one of the great blondes of his youth. Grace Kelly, maybe, or the gal from all the Hitchcock movies. He's thankful for his age as they make small talk. A younger Bob would have spent the whole conversation tongue-tied. Her husband leans against the doorframe, eyes on the runway. Mr. Mohegan, Bob had never picked up his first name, huffs and puffs on a cigarette. He ashes it nervously, looking back only into the room to smile if Bob or Belle laugh. The wind is blowing his smoke inside. Bob hates it, but he's not going to tell the guy to stop. The Mohegan couple paid him handsomely to store their fancy airplane, enough money to keep the heat on all winter. For that peace of mind, Bob can stomach a moment's irritation. Belle has no such qualms. Darling, I wish you wouldn't smoke so close to the door. You're guessing us. Oh, it's no bother to me, says Bob. Back when I flew, I needed a smoke to steal my nerves. Not that you do, sir. He looks over to the monitor. Got your license in 1992, eh? Good lord, son, how old were you? You don't look a day over 40. Pretty young, says Mr. Mohegan, and stomps out his cigarette. Across the dusty airfield, the mechanic has finished his work and is headed their way. Now Belle turns to the door as well, and she's wearing a puzzled expression. She seems to breathe in her husband's smoke for a moment, and then the look fades. I'd love to have you back here next year says Bob. Not much to do in Garnet, but read and hunt and toss a few back. But for some people, you know, that's plenty. I wouldn't be surprised if we did that, says Belle, offering Bob an overdone wink. It's so quiet up here. The air is so clean, and the other morning there were bears in our front yard. Bears. 
Well, I think she'd be a little less thrilled if they tried to get inside, says Mr. Mohegan. But it definitely was something. It's a great place for wild animals, says Bob. The couple turn to look at him, then cast a knowing glance at each other. It is, <laughs> Belle says, with her faint Jackie O giggle. It really is. She winks at her husband. The mechanic finally makes it all the way across the runway. Bob feels a twinge of annoyance. The dumbass got grease all over his coveralls like he always does, and probably only did it because Bob pays for the laundry. He parks himself about ten feet from the shack's doorway and idly polishes a wrench with a rag, something Bob knows from experience the simpleton does to keep his hands busy. How are we? asks Mr. Mohegan. All good, all over, says the little mechanic with a big yellow rural America smile. Hope you have a great trip wherever the wind takes you, sir. He glances to Belle and offers her the slightest of nods, ma'am. He shuffles awkwardly for a moment, then walks away whistling a song that Bob doesn't recognize at first. So where are you headed to? asks Bob, as if he hasn't seen the flight plan. Doing a jaunt across the Pacific, says Mr. Mohegan, and then we're wintering down in Chile. We're sunny people, says Belle. The less night, the better. Ain't that the truth, says Bob. Well, you won't miss much. Up here, it's bound to get 40 below, and when it's that cold, I'm afraid we have to get going. Mr. Mohegan's eyes are on his watch. It's been a great experience living up here. We'll have to do it again, definitely. He shakes Bob's hand with a grip that is frighteningly strong, gives him a big white-toothed grin that almost manages to mask his condescension. Mr. Mohegan sniffs the air one last time, a bit too loudly. Bob is about to ask him if he needs some Dayquil when Belle wraps him with a tight hug that makes him feel 30 again. We'll miss you, and we promise we'll be back. It's so great here. She kisses him on the cheek. It's Bob's first proper kiss in almost 40 years, and his first ever from someone this pretty. The happy couple run arm in arm like they're braving a hail of wedding rice. They're in the jet five minutes later with Mr. Mohegan helping his woman up the steps like a gentleman from another time. From Bob's time. The engines roar. Bob feels warm inside. And for once, it's without the aid of liquor. It's a morning for things like that. First time in a while sort of things. Bob's mechanic joins him in the little shack-slash-office as the airplane begins to taxi across the field. The creep is still whistling that idiotic song, and he's got his lunch pail in his hand, even though his break is hours away. Will you quit it before you get that song stuck in my head? asks Bob. The hell is that, anyway? No answer. The mechanic strides out onto the runway, eyes on the jet. He offers them a wave as they pick up speed. To Bob's horror, that wave turns into a middle finger just as they leave the earth. Hey, cries Bob. What the hell are you doing? The mechanic ignores him and drops to one knee. The plane sort of wavers, as if having seen the gesture, Mr. Mohegan wants to challenge it, then begins to ascend. Bob balls his fists. Welcome to unemployment, kid, is his first thought. To hell with that. Welcome to a wholesale ass-kicking, you sawed-off little shit. That's when the right engine of the Cessna explodes. Bob falls to the ground on his belly. The mechanic only flinches. He's taken something out of his lunch pail. 
The Cessna plummets in a spiral of flame before exploding in the trees a quarter mile from the runway. Birds take to the air as the flames of the burning jet fuel boil in the air and forest like a miniature atomic bomb. Bob grabs the side of his little shack as he tries to stand. Something sharp and rusty twists in his chest. Willie! He screams. What the fuck did you do? And that's when it hits him. Some song from the 1970s about not being able to push a kid named Willie around. That's not my name, says his mechanic, who had signed his papers under the name William B. Talbot. It had seemed like an alias. And here, on what promised to be the last day of Bob Shutter's life, the old man's suspicions play out. He pushes off the shack and staggers toward Willie, determined to land at least one haymaker on the murdering son of a bitch. Willie raises the thing he took out of his lunch pail. He doesn't point the thirty-eight special at Bob. He doesn't have to. You're just one letter off, says the little mechanic. My name's Billy. I came here for some get-back for what those two did. The little man spits on the ground and levels his handgun at the woods. I hated my life, but it was still mine, goddammit. And they had no right to take it away from me. You, starts Bob but the iron in his throat chokes out the rest of his words. They would leave this late, says Billy, eyeing the eastern horizon. Not too long before dark, but soon enough that if they'd gotten a scrape, they know they'd be all right, and whoever held them up wouldn't be. It all worked out, didn't it? First night in eighty days hits on a full moon. Sons of bitches. He spits again, fiddles with the gun. Relax, Bob. The fire probably killed him. Fire kills almost anything. But if it don't, I got something that will. Bob realizes that the young man, though not so young, is crying. The distant fire reflecting in the tracks of his tears. I bet they're out there in the woods right now. Clothes burned off of them, naked as jaybirds, just waiting for night to come so they can rush me. But I spent years tracking them. I went to bed imagining this, and then I dreamed of it. I've waited so long. I can wait until sunset easy. And then, I'll deal with them. When it's done, you can turn me into the law. Won't fight you. But Bob won't be taking anyone anywhere. An iron vice crushes shut on his heart. He loses his footing and falls into his back. Just before the darkness takes him, he looks back to his mechanic, formerly Little Willie, who wouldn't go home, Talbot. Now Billy's something or other. All five foot four inches of a little man stand against the inferno of the blazing forest, hands tied on the grip of his thirty-eight. Bob thinks of full moons and silver bullets, and stares into the flames with him, hoping to bear witness to some kind of magic in his final seconds. But his vision fades from the edges, until everything gives way to black, and the fire keeps its secrets past the end.
That was Roy Bishop's Flyover Country, a Tales to Terrify original, as read by Matthew Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the No Sleep podcast, ZombieCast, and video game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at Matt O. McFly. Link will be in the show notes. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.